think of all of the different things that happened in that Holy Week that you have recollection of. And if you're brand new to Christian tradition or the faith, you, you likely know at least something there. A crucifixion is going to happen in that week. His arrest prior to that, uh, other things. Well, well, on this day, nearly 2,000 some years ago, Jesus arrived back in the holy city of Jerusalem. He's been on a pretty significant ministry tour over the last several months, and he's bounced in and out of the holy city a few different times, but it's been some time since he's been in Jerusalem. And he arrives back in the holy city, and with his 12 closest friends, the disciples, he says to a couple of them, hey, I want you to go into the city, and you're going to find a donkey, a young colt tied up in the middle of town, and he gives some pretty specific details of how they'll find this. And he says to them, grab that donkey and, and bring it to me. And when asked, what in the world are you doing, taking something that wasn't yours, give this answer, and all the details are laid out. And they do, and they bring that donkey to Jesus, and he comes in in what we now know in religious circles as the triumphant entry, or the triumphal entry. And Jesus arrives in the city, and they sing Hosanna, and they lay palm branches down at his feet that they would have brought in town for the Passover celebration, things that they had brought for quite some time to celebrate. And the Gospel of Mark, where we've been anchored over the last six weeks leading up to Holy Week and Easter, outlines some of the events that follow just after Jesus comes into the city. And after he arrives on that donkey, and we get a number of different events and a number of different teachings that Jesus gives. But one particular encounter that I would like us to look at today is pretty often overlooked one that maybe gets raced past. And I think we'd be forgiven for overlooking it most of the time because it uh, can get cast aside with all the other important events going on that day, going on that week. Uh, maybe I'll refresh your memory a little or maybe it will be a first interaction with this idea that Jesus comes into the city and then, and then leaves, the Gospel of Mark tells us, steps just outside the city and curses a fig tree. It's really weird interaction that Jesus has. And his disciples see him curse his tree. He sees a, a fig tree kind of in full leaf, in full bloom, and he goes over to get a fig, and there's no figs, and so he curses it. The next day, at some point in the day, they walk past the tree, and they notice the tree is already withered overnight. They're going, oh my goodness. This story of the gospel of Mark, of establishing the authority of Jesus over and over and over again, is driving home this idea even now that Jesus even has the authority to stop a tree from growing. Well, then he goes into the temple, and maybe you're familiar with that story. Maybe you've used that story to justify flipping tables in your own house, right? Don't do it. It's not a good plan. He was Jesus, okay? But he, he turns tables, and then some real key and significant teaching about the parable of the evil farmers comes. And then his teaching on taxes and give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And, and this whole grouping of teachings and experiences that are really significant in that moment. But, but Sandwich kind of nestled in between all of this. In between discussions on the resurrection of the dead, which he uses a really weird illustration to explain about a man... Uh, or a woman who 
husband dies and marries off to all the brothers and ends up married to seven different brothers. And I mean, just a weird teaching. Nestled in between that and the, the story of the widow's might is the story we look at today, the encounter that we look at. And all throughout these six weeks, we've looked at encounters with Jesus that people had that radically changed the way they walked with Jesus. Look with me now, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. So amidst all of this going on, amidst everything that's just happened, we find ourselves just about a day and a half after Jesus has come into the city and all this stuff has happened, dead fig trees and tables turned over and crazy teachings about resurrection and all of this stuff, this teacher of religious law comes in verse 28 and he's standing there and he's listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, and so he asked, of all the commands, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. None of the other commandments is greater than this. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher. Well, circle that one mentally. Or I mean, it's just a weird, a weird thing to say. And give some indication that the conversation is going a particular direction. But wait, there's more. You've spoken the truth by saying that there's only one God and no other. Verse 33. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to even offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required by the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus looked at him and said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No one dared. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, in this place, in this community of friends who are following Jesus together, your way is being worked out amidst us through the ups and downs of life, through struggles at home, difficulties at work, through triumph, through difficulty. We find your way being shaped in us as a people. So we ask, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, that your way would be continually shaped in us, even in these moments. May this encounter <coughs> that this man has with you have a powerful effect on how we follow you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses, who has led Israel through the desert for 40 years, standing just pretty close to the brink of entering into the promised land, stands up before Israel, and he says these very powerful words that Jesus is quoting in Mark chapter 12. He says, listen, O Israel, 
The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. He goes on in verse 6 to say, and, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up and tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on your doorposts and on your house and on your gates. Now, this reference in Deuteronomy is really rich with Old Testament tradition, and it's giving some kind of smoke signals or, uh, you know, laser beams to a few other experiences throughout Scripture. And, and if, that's, if you're into that thing, this is such a fun text to dive into deeply. And go, go look into doorposts and go explore that. It's so rich. But all these years later, after Moses stands at the brink of the promised land and says to Israel, hey, do not forget this thing that we pray. All these years later, just like Moses and Israel, Jesus says to them a very similar thing. And so when a Jewish religious leader comes to a young Jewish rabbi, and asks him the most important commandment. He's, he's in so many ways playing the same playbook out that Jesus has been playing out throughout the, his entire ministry. When farmers would come to Jesus and say to Jesus, Rabbi, help us follow you. What would it look like to follow you? And Jesus says to them, well, here's how you plant seed. They go, wait, wait, wait. We, we know how to plant seed. We're asking you how to follow you. Yeah, the kingdom of God is like this. And he's always giving these same repetitions back to them, telling farmers how to farm as a way to engage with the kingdom of heaven. So here you have a Jewish religious leader who comes to a young Jewish rabbi and says to the young Jewish rabbi, essentially, hey, what is the most famous prayer that any of us ever pray? And Jesus says to them, oh, we know. But Jesus adds the second piece to it in Mark that wasn't added in what we know as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. He adds the love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 29 and 30, we see this play out right before our eyes. Jesus replies, most important commandment. Hear, O hear, O Israel, one translation would put it. The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is equally important. He brings in this second piece now that in some sense would have been new to them, but is it really? I mean, I think back to the earliest days of Christ's ministry. Think, think to the wedding at Cana where he just rolls out overflowing love on these wedding guests who've run out of the simplest thing of wine and says, oh yeah, I don't want you to be ashamed that you ran out. Let me just whip up some more. When Jesus is touched on the, 
the hem of his garment by a woman amidst a melee of people bumping into him and pushing him, and he he calls it out. Amidst another young girl who's died that he's on the way to go see, he goes and he heals her. Another woman at the well in John chapter 4 who he connects with and goes out of his way to love. This commandment, if you will, to love your neighbor as yourself has been on display in Jesus for so long. And so when this Jewish leader, Jewish religious leader brings it up, he's hearkening Jesus back to this promised land picture, this new era that Israel is about to step into. And Moses says, as you step into a new era of your existence as a people of God, don't forget the prayers you've prayed before. Jesus says the same to them. For the sake of time, I won't dive into too great of depth on the Shema, but uh, for those interested in, in digging into that a little bit, in your digital program, I added a link from just the awesome women and men at the Bible Project who a lot of us uh, love reading that stuff or watching that watching their videos or podcasts. They do a great little treatment on the Shema. So use that link and that'll be a great help to you. And um, we'll bow to their brilliance and move on to something that I think will help us in these moments. Because let me at least say this much about the Shema and Jesus's famous reference to it. This again, famous prayer that every Jewish woman and man would have known, that every young boy and young girl would have been reciting for some time. But more than simply referencing it himself, he's emphasizing the parallel of the promised land of Israel and the promised land of the Jesus followers. He says to them, we're entering a very holy week and you stand on the precipice of something brand new. this promised land made available by Christ's death. It's, it's really interesting. Jesus, even at the Last Supper, uh, announces to them, e eat this bread and drink this cup, for it announces my death. And he doesn't mention his resurrection at that point. And many would read that and go, well, he's not gonna announce his resurrection right there, but he's mentioned the resurrection lots of other places. And, and then we fast forward to the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul speaks of the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. Paul certainly talks about the resurrection, but when he talks about the power of Christ, Paul typically references the cross. So it's a reminder to us to not lose sight of the cross. We hang it in the building. We put it around. It's easy to forget, I suppose. But Jesus adds to this historic prayer, and by adding this next step of loving your neighbor, he's making possible what would have been forever impossible without the cross. Without the death, without his sacrifice, without his overflowing demonstration of love, there's no way we have a capacity to love our neighbor. Some of you may have followed along and some of you even chimed in, which I'm so grateful for this last week as I posed kind of my weekly question for Christians on Facebook. I asked, how do, how do we manage to love those who, when, when we're 
helping or loving or coming alongside those who are marginalized in our world, how do we also love those who may be even seen as an oppressor of the marginalized? Because I think a lot of us kind of hold this intention. We go, well, I'm going to love that group and hate that group, right? I'm going to love these people. And if I can love these people, that means those people get to be my enemy. And sometimes we even pick who we're going to love based on who we want to be our enemy, right? Any Dodger and Giants fans in the room? No. You have to choose one. You don't have to, you don't have to love them, but you can't love them both, right? It's like Raiders and Broncos. No, thank you. Broncos play at mile high. They're closest to Jesus. Raiders, city of sin. Right? We like this kind of world. We like, we like polarities. Jesus says to them, by the power of the cross, you now get to love everybody. You get the privilege to love all. Israel would have heard that prior to Messiah. And Israel would have said, yeah, but we're, we're the chosen ones, right? We're not those evil Philistines. And by the cross of Christ, Jesus says, you get to love the Philistines. You are the Philistines. You see, our, our love for God is best demonstrated by our love for others. Like, especially those who are really difficult to love. Well, wait, you don't know my boss. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I'm, I'm, I have a great boss. Hi, boss. <laughs> Just in case. Got to cover your bases, right? <laughs> we all have people in our life who are really difficult to love. This is what the cross does for us. The cross makes it possible. By the power of Christ in me, I have the ability to love. And this is my demonstration of my love for God. And this religious leader drives it home in kind of a surprising way. He doesn't call Jesus out on adding, which would have been pretty normal for a Jewish leader to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We have a prayer that we've been using for a long time. Don't go adding to it. He says, yeah, yeah, Jesus, absolutely. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second is just as important as the first. And we see this over and over and over again in Scripture. Sometimes said quite harshly, like the prophet Amos, who many of us have probably not ever given the time to read. But in Amos chapter 5, listen to these sharp words. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, I hate all of your show and your pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings or your grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns and praise. I will not listen to your music, your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living an endless river of righteous living. So when this religious leader 
says to Jesus, well said, teacher, in verse 32. And he says, and I know it is important to love him with all my heart and strength, This, but, and to also love my neighbor. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required by the law. This young religious leader, Jesus says, these are your two commandments. And this young religious leader goes, oh, wait, 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 that's Amos. I get it, Jesus. I get it. The greatest offering I can bring you, the greatest religious experience I can bring you, the greatest song I can harmonize or play, the, the most beautiful poem I can write is a love story to those in my life who I care for the least. That's the worship he longs for. And that is what the cross makes possible. Jesus marches in at the advent of this holy week on a humble donkey and says to them, here I am, humble on a donkey. Hosanna in the highest. You can love your neighbor. This is the announcement. This is the pronouncement on them. Away with your clanging hymns. And it's not just the Old Testament prophets. Some 35 years later, give or take, the Apostle Paul would write something really similar when he writes a letter to his friends in the church in Corinth. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13, this very famous passage that often gets read at weddings, which is wonderful and beautiful, but he's not writing this to a married couple. He's writing this to a church. And he says to them, if I could speak all the languages of earth and angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. As if to say, and we know what God thinks about noisy gongs and empty symbols. It's worship he won't accept. Paul goes on in verse two of chapter 13, 1 Corinthians. He says, if I had the gift of prophecy, Amos, if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and I possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor, and even sacrificed my own body, I could boast about it. And Paul kind of did pretty well. Well, let's just keep it real, right? But he he ends the sentence, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. I would have gained nothing. So we come back to this question that we begin these moments in the text with what were the most critical events of Holy Week for the Christ follower. I might argue, or at least I might present to you the opportunity to say any event that encouraged his people to love the people they didn't want to love. And we come to the climax of that moment of the deepest love ever experienced, and we have this picture of Christ on a cross and this man next to him on the cross who belongs to be on it. And Jesus' love overflows to him and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. His love for the other overflows into every moment. May we answer that question by the way we live, 
And may the way we live demonstrate our love for God and others in powerful ways. Friends, you and I stand at the brink of a new promised land. We're about to have another presidential election. Yay, won't that be a joy? You know what? It can be. It can be a great joy for us as we love one another. We, we don't have to walk through these things with landmines. We Oh, you're going to vote that way? Well, that's interesting. I love you. <laughs> right? Oh, did you see what happened on the news this week? I, I did, and, and I love you. Did you see what that person did to my people? I did, and I love you. This is the invitation to us. May, may we not be Christians who simply sit it out. May we not be Christians who simply hide. I, I'm not saying we should all necessarily be all over Facebook or go run for city council. If that's your thing, go do that thing. That's fine. But what I am saying is the answer to our Christian faith is not merely to shrink away and hide. It's, well, I don't go there and I don't engage in that conversation and I don't talk to that kind of person because we're too far different. Rather, we say I embrace all of it and I pronounce with my life and my language, I love you because of the cross of Christ. May the Lord keep you, and may he bless you, and may his face and his love shine upon you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, you have been so good to us. And in these moments, we celebrate Maranatha. Hallelujah. Worthy is your name. And your name is not only worthy to be praised and to be adored and to be worshiped. Yes, all of that. But your name is also worthy to overflow love out of our lives. To love the customer who is nasty. To love the client who's incapable of patience. To love the employee who doesn't listen. To love the boss who never stops talking to love the spouse who has pushed our button again, to love the child who won't obey. Holy Spirit, we invite you, we ask you, we beg of you to keep the cross of Christ right close in our focus this week as we march through Holy Week and prepare to celebrate the greatest day in history we do so in full view of the cross so that your love would never stop flowing from us. Holy, holy. Hallelujah, Maranatha, we pray in Jesus' name.